Hello, I'm Farah Nayeri, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the Culture Blast podcast. I'm the host of the show and the author of a just-released book titled Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age. It's all about the politics of contemporary art, and you may find it interesting. As you know, Culture Blast is a series of deep-dive interviews with personalities from across the world of culture. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Emma Thompson, Niall Rogers, Nan Golden, and Elif Shafak. I now bring you my very first guest from the world of dance, Wayne McGregor, the Royal Ballet resident choreographer and one of the giants of contemporary dance. And I'm not referring to his height. As the New York Times has written, Wayne McGregor creates hyperkinetic, often strange-looking movement, distinguished by its extreme extensions, buckling torsos, and improbably fast coordinations among parts of the body. Wayne has a motto, it's never too late to dance. And I couldn't agree more. Wayne McGregor, I'm truly very pleased to welcome you to the first episode of Culture Blast dedicated to the world of dance. It's absolutely great to have you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Wayne. Wayne, dance is a discipline that I love deeply, almost as much as you do. And you and I have another thing in common our childhood worship of John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. I don't know about you, but my walls were covered with Travolta posters. Well, they were. I mean, how could you not? I mean, he's just such an incredible um, physical presence. I just, I just loved the way he moved. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw him recently. There was a clip of him on the James Corden show. He got up uh, from the sofa and he just did a few kind of very simple moves and he was teaching other people how to do them. And he was incredible. I just don't know why that guy didn't become a dancer and not an actor. Some people just have natural um, dance physical presence, right? Some people just can dance well. Some people can be taught to dance well. So I think there's dance inside all of us. But I I think he's definitely in the natural camp. Uh, Definitely. I know you were very good at dance as a little boy and that you got noticed by your teacher and you did some mambo and cha-cha-cha and ballroom dancing. But when did you have the actual revelation that this is a discipline you were going to dedicate your life to and not just something you did after school, like you might do swimming or track and field or sports? I think I was always a child that was very much in my body. So, you know, looking back, I realized that kind of my physical life was very important to me. So in a way, it was a natural progression to think how that might be exercised in a discipline that was quite rigorous and that you had to work harder on. Um, but I think right from starting those early ballroom and Latin American dancing lessons and the, the, the disco lessons, I just loved it. I felt very free inside that space. I felt very open. I felt I could communicate and I felt I was good at it. Um, and that was very kind of empowering. It gave me confidence. Um, and I just looked forward to it. It was something uh, in the week that I genuinely, um, you know, really, really look forward to. And I think it's really important to have those uh, things in your life, the things that, you know, really feed you, feed your soul. Um, so it was early. It was I was eight. Yes. But when I mean, what I'm trying to get at is when did you actually decide this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? I think you don't decide in that way. I don't know. I don't think we make decisions like that. I think in a way, a whole series of circumstances conspire to you doing something more. And all of a sudden it takes 
over you. I mean, dancing, after all, is an act of becoming. And so I think there's a sense in which you just keep going and going. And then all of a sudden, it's all that you want to do. It's, you know, there's a sense in which that's actually what you want to spend your focus doing. That's actually how you want to get better at something. And then you are it. So I often think, well, you know, when did you decide to become a dancer or to become a choreographer? And I couldn't pinpoint the exact moment. I think it's, it's, it's naturally crept up on me. And I'm always curious about the fact that you were a very good dancer when you were uh, younger, and then you chose the path of choreography. And it's true that choreographers are in the enviable position of making all the big decisions. They get their name on the poster, and they get a lot of the credit, let's face it. But don't you miss the electricity and the buzz of actually performing on stage? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something very special about that transaction of energy between the stage when you're performing and audiences that you really see and connect with. You know, when you're dancing on stage, I'm sure you know this from being a dancer, that you also, you actually can individualize each of the people in that auditorium. You know, it's not just a mass of people. You feel a personal connection with everybody in a very particular and direct way. And you can nuance your performance and attend to um, areas of the uh, auditorium or particular people in real time. So you really feel also the energy, the physical presence of that audience back to you. You feel if they're getting perhaps slightly bored or you feel if they're feeling euphoric, you feel if they're going on the journey with you. So that's the beautiful thing about live dance performing on stage is you get that transaction of energy. I guess as a choreographer, I have that in the studio. I have that with dancers in real time when I'm working with them. They become the feedback mechanism. Um, But they're, they're totally different things. Things. And sometimes I do miss the, the um, it's partly the adrenaline that you get before you perform, that um, extreme kind of interceptive state where you have to know that you've got to deliver in a particular way. I would imagine it would be like elite sports, you know, the Olympics ready to perform and the nervousness that you get with that. And then that moment when you step over the threshold and the freedom that you exercise, the state of bliss, the state of soaring, the state of flying. Um, you don't quite get that in the studio in the same way. But you get that when you have a big premiere, like you did recently of the Dante Project at the Royal Opera House. You do, but it's, it's kind of, there's a lack of control with the premiere, it, the weather isn't when you're performing live. So when I used to perform in my own shows, of course I would have made them, but I have all of that ritual um, before the stage um, performances where I get ready myself. I prepare my body. I get into my own kind of mental, kind of imaginative state. I then perform when I can perform well or not so well. But I have a, uh, I have some voice in that end result. But I think when you're a choreographer, it's almost that you have to let go. You know, your baby has been produced and made and it's the dancers who have to express that work and it's down to them. So there's a kind of a slightly one removed and a a sense of um, helplessness in a way, because in that moment, that's just that beautiful, hopefully choreographic object communicating to the audience in real time. And you can't do anything about it at that point. Let's move on to the subject of your parents, um, who you've spoken about with great affection. Um, They met when they were incredibly young. She was 17, he was 18, and I believe they've scarcely spent a day of their life apart. They moved from Scotland to Stockport, uh, outside Manchester, where you grew up as their only child. You know, loving parents are a blessing. And they're central to a person's self-confidence and anchoring in life. I wondered how important you thought growing up in a loving household was to the confidence you've had in your career, to the fact that you had set up your first dance company at the age of 22. You know, I mean, you do seem to me like someone quite together. 
I think it's so important that sense of kind of unconditional love and an opportunity to be able to be so free and open that you can try anything and fail and that it has no consequence. And I think that sense of being able to fail over and over again, but have loving parents that say, we'll just keep going and give it another go is really extraordinary. And in a way, I don't think they thought about that in a conscious, um, deliberate way at all. I think it's just the way they are as individuals. Um, they don't necessarily exercise that for themselves. You know, they're not particularly brave. They don't try lots, you know, they're actually much more, you know, risk averse in many ways. But they've always, even, even, you know, I was learning the violin, for example, I could learn the violin or any instrument. Their only condition was I had to do it for a period of time. I had to give it time. So I wasn't allowed to pick something up and then, you know, then not do it the next week. I had to commit to a period of engagement with it to see whether or not you would develop a passion for that. The other thing that I do have from them is that sense if things go wrong, it's not the end of the world. In our case, it's only a dance, you know, or it's only, you know, you can pick yourself up and it's actually how you respond to the challenges of failure rather than the failure itself. And, you know, often I've had very difficult times maybe at Covent Garden where perhaps the work hasn't landed in the way in which I thought it might with um, either the audience or certain critics. Um, but that has been in a context of being able to pick oneself up and learn from those experiences and know how um, to move to the next step. What is the next actionable step you can take? And that's something that they've really encouraged me to always be like. Excellent. Yeah. And you obviously get along very well with them. I get on really and we drive each other mad, you know, it's, you know, it's, I, I think that they're also very non-judgmental um, about everything, about my personal life, about who my friends are, you know, it's across the board. They're very open, very good communicators. Um, and I hope part of that kind of social dynamic, the way the interpersonal skills, the relational skills were actually you really need in dance making because you're dealing with individuals who are at different states of fragility through their day, through their week, through their year. You're dealing with human beings. Um, and I think those interpersonal skills are really important, the communication skills. And I think my parents have always been very good communicators in that way. And I think that's provided an easement for me in my life, again, whether or not be in the art making process. You know, often I have to go into a, a large scale um, organization with hundreds of people um, um, don't know any of them and have to build relationships quickly. You know, you have to build a relationship with a technical department at the Paris Opera to be able to realize your ideas with them. You have to do that over and over again. I'm faced with 70, 80 dancers that I don't know, and I have to try and find a way of having the conversation with them. So I think the interpersonal is as important as any of the other kind of like technical skills that you might have as a choreographer. And so what did they do in, uh, professionally? Uh, is either of them artistic? Well, they're not artistic at all. You know, my mum worked in international accounts and my dad came from a farming background and managed estates. But they, my dad was very practical, so very hands-on. Um, he's a maker, but he, he could make a dry stone wall rather than a dance necessarily. Um, and my mum has always had a really good business head. So I think that's why I've always been able... You, you mentioned that I started my company very early and at that time I was doing all my own administration, all my own budgets, all my own applications. And I think it's the balance of both of their skill sets the making skill set and the kind of managerial skill set that's actually really helped me in my career with the company particularly. There's something that you must be very, very conscious of as a choreographer, and that's human ego. The human ego is a very fragile thing. Of course, I cannot in any way compare myself to you, Wayne, but I mean, <laughs> I am a student of flamenco and I dance flamenco, and sometimes we have 
uh, performances and shows and, and the maestro moves forward and picks, you know, who stands where and who gets to do what when. And this is a really nerve wracking, even for me, who's not, you know, doing this professionally, I find this very nerve wracking and it can really be upsetting to certain people. Do you know what I mean? I what mean, worries you when that happens? What do you feel when that happens, when the selection is being made? Well, I mean, now you're interviewing me. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there are two kinds of people, okay, I think. There are people who are soloists, like who love to, you know, perform solo. And there are other people who like to perform as part of a, of a company, of a troupe. And I think I'm a, I'm belong to the first category. Right. Because I'm used to sort of like whatever I do if I'm a journalist, so there's no one kind of helping me write my stories or I just wrote a book. No one helped me write the book. And so I'm used to sort of being out there and public speaking on my own. And in these circumstances, you are part of a group of people. And when, you know, in certain parts of the dance, you will be brought forward and in other parts, you will not. And so you kind of, when you're not, you kind of thinking, oh gosh, I must be bad. That's so interesting. So I have two very different experiences of this. So at the Royal Ballet, which is a hierarchical system where there are stars and there's a corps de ballet, there's an expectation that you would create your work within the confines of that hierarchy. And for me, that's never interested me, even in a classical ballet company, because I've always felt that making a dance is a communal act. It's a we, not I endeavour. And actually, many of those um, young dancers that are in the corps de ballet have extraordinary personal uh, soloistic potential. So I've always cast my ballets across um, hierarchical system, but it's interesting how perhaps some of the stars, when they're not doing the solos, react badly psychologically to that as an idea. So in a way, for me, that's a form of censorship, right? That's actually saying the hierarchy makes you make your decisions in a particular way, not necessarily based on what is the physical information you're getting out of the body in real time. And that's very different from my company because the company is a, a, a group, a bit like Alvin Ailey, for example, where it's a non-hierarchical system where everybody is soloist, everybody is core, everybody learns everything, everybody learns the different parts, they're gender neutral, they move between all of this. Um, they might in a show, you know, swap parts mid midway. And actually, that's really interesting. That's a different kind of like commitment to working on a choreographer's vision and knowing that you will be profiled or you will be um, worked within a group because it's all in the service of the work itself. So I think as soon as you're able to explain to dancers that we're thinking about what is the work, what is the work we're trying to make, how can we build a collective imagination around that work, they relax and let go of some of the fear about not being the principal or the soloist. And I think a lot of the things that we talk about when you talk about ego are based around fear. And I think if you can attack or talk about and discuss the fear element in a really humane way, it opens up lots of new possibilities for different kinds of interactions. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, fear is really key, isn't it? Just in so many aspects of life. Um, I wanted also to talk about something that I find very mysterious about dance. You speak very poetically about dance and movement. You say, we carry our personal archive in our body. Each of us has a physical signature. And I personally also find that the combination of music and movement does something mysterious and powerful to the mind. You know, it just somehow lifting your arm, lifting your leg, just moving your body to music, just something happens to the mind, something happens to the soul. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the mystery of dance and this strange alchemy of music and movement. 
I mean, music and sound is so is so central to our our lived experience, right? We're we you know walking down the street and we're zoning out certain noises and we're attending to certain noises. With music, you know, music not only is a direct res- somatic response; it comes straight into the body, and you can feel that your body wants to do something. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about improvising to music that anybody can do. You know, it just sears in you, and you just know what to do. You don't think, "How shall I dance to this music?" And that's what's always interesting to me about people who go to nightclubs and say they can't dance is because they feel that they have to dance in a particular kind of way that yeah. is not like a natural kind of like response um, which is phenomenal but like when if you think about music music also allows you to see images you know it evokes images in your mind it takes you back through your history to certain parts uh, um, of, of your experiences and all of these are somatic they're physical but also we have an amazing ability um, everybody does dancers particularly of being able to think about music without actually hearing it and be able to dance without music playing. So there's a sense in which you can conjure your musical signals, your musical, like I can sing a song right now in my head and I can dance to it. So that's the deep connection between music and body. You don't even need external sources for it to live inside you. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. So let's broaden the discussion just a little bit. You're a great lover of technology, and there's quite a lot of it in your dance uh, frequently. And you often describe the human body as being one of the most sophisticated pieces of technology around, which, of course, it is. But technology, it could also eat us all up alive. I mean, if one day artificial intelligence is able to emulate the human being in every way, then we're all going to be toast, Wayne. (laughs) And there will be no more dancers. They're just going to be robots. I mean, doesn't that frighten you? I think, well, it doesn't frighten me because I think it's all about the application of technology. You know, you said there that actually, you know, technology is going to be able to replicate all of human experience. Is that really a fact? Is that possible? We already know with cognitive neuroscience, for example, that we can model the brain in certain aspects, but not in all of its rich dimensions. We're still at a very, very early stage. So I think the endeavor is really interesting. How is it that you make um, and how we understand the physical experience or the mental experience from a, a cognitive or a kind of a technical logical point of view? How do we rebuild that? How can we build that in AI? How can AI help us understand that? How can we do that within body cognition? But realistically, will we be able to recreate a fully sentient human being that can do all of the things that a live dancer can do? I don't think so. And I think my interest, certainly not in my lifetime, I think my interest is actually in its um, application to extend the possibilities and extend the dialogue between live experience and a technologically driven experience. I'm interested in the synergy between those things and how they might find equivalence in their relative domains not replicating the same. I think sameness is not that interesting. I think it's only interesting as a way to find something different. Well, that's a big relief. Thanks a lot, Wayne, for us giving me some reassurance on that front. Um, As a choreographer, you can physically challenge your dancers, push their bodies to what could be their limits. You've said that you can fold your body like an origami and you do have extremely long limbs. Wayne is doing wild gestures in the studio. (laughs) And you've been known to ask dancers to put their nose on the floor and then rotate. You know, it just sounds to me absolutely impossible. So do you feel sometimes you might be pushing them a little too hard? 
Never, because I think the thing about dancers who've trained for a certain level of virtuosity, and I talk about virtuosity, not about a technical step, but a virtuosity of understanding their body and their physiology and their biomechanics to know what the, their body, their unique particular body can and cannot do. And so when I'm working with dancers, I'm not the choreographer at the front who's got a big stick telling them to do things that they have to try at the risk of um, injuring themselves. I'm asking and curating a conversation with them where we're pulling out things together. So I'm saying, can you? Is this possible? What kinds of things might we be able to make together? So so often it's the dancers priming my eye with their physicality to allow me to do something really interesting with it. It's never like um, it, it's ne- never a suit that they would have to wear that is very uncomfortable for them. And if you think about these really elite dancers, think about Stephen McRae at the Royal Ballet. He's yeah. an incredibly fast, extremely, um, he's almost got a mind like a computer. He can reverse material really quickly. He's got an amazing physical range. Um, when you ask him to work with you on a new creation, you're doing that together. So you're pushing that Ferrari in a really interesting dimension. But he is always in control of what he understands about his body's able to do. So yeah, we might be able to make bodies like pretzels or like fold them like origami, but there's a sense in which that comes from a deep, deep connection with their own body and understanding of how they're going to be able to uh, change what the, the lexicon might be that they're used to dancing. Slow, 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 blackout. Very nice. Okay, great. Really good. <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> Should we have a little go? Joe, what do you think? Should we have a little go? Let's have a little go. Nice and yeah, nice and quiet, huh? Let's have a quiet just be careful of the space, huh? What do you need? Maybe when we go out, we'll come up a little higher. Yeah? Just a little bit Yeah? Okay. Be celestial now. Okay, stop. So, Joe, thanks. Let's do the same thing again. Yeah. Here we go. Thank you. Ready? And. As we all know, the world of dance and ballet, of which you're a part, is not all tutus and handsome princes. The Bolshoi ballet director, Sergei Filin, had acid thrown in his face and he lost his eyesight. More recently, there were allegations of sexual misconduct in a number of ballet companies all over the Western world, I suppose. Have the companies you've worked with ever felt unsafe to you, either for yourself, you know, for yourself being perhaps attacked by by angry or aggressive members of the company, as Sergei was, I suppose? Or, or did it ever feel unsafe for the young dancers? I mean, did you feel in any way an atmosphere that was not altogether um, friendly? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I've come from a contemporary dance background. I've come from a company that I've started myself where you work out what the social structure is. You work out how that works. You work out what the communication mechanisms are. Um, and that I've worked, therefore, with that kind of understanding in organizations that sometimes are more challenging or are certainly more challenging in terms of the ways in which they've been built. So if you think about ballet companies, how they started, they started as small kind of like familial units that just grew. 
And a lot of the kind of familial structures, the obligation, the kind of the networks, the nepotism, the relationality just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And you see that not just in ballet companies, but you see it in any large organization. And it takes an outside perspective, a zooming out to really get into the detail of that and to unpick some of it. And I think actually ballet companies have gone through a bit of a period of zooming out finally. They're zooming out and looking at what are some of these structures, what are some of the ways in which these are really um, unhealthy in a range of, um, it could be from uh, training um, as a beginning, maybe dictatorial training. How is it you can immediately start um, encouraging individual voices? How is it that you even decide who is allowed to train in, in our case, classical ballet. You know, yes. it's all fine having, you know, lots of outreach programs where you work with anyone, but there's a moment where there's a selection process where they go into the more elite schools and who's, who's being ironed out of there and why are they being ironed out? What are the selection criteria there? How do we open that up? How do we find a way of um, balancing the creative and imaginative and the physical and the acknowledgement that actually different bodies can actually provide a really amazing contribution to a balletic language? That starts that young. So what therefore is that talent pipeline? How do you work that? So I do think ballet companies, certainly the Royal Ballet, have been zooming out and looking at recalibrating what that might be. If there are problems or issues, what are the reporting structures? How do dancers who are in a big group, how do they have an individual voice that allows them to be able to communicate things that they don't feel is working? And then how can that come back into the system and be improved? So I do think that ballet is, has got a way to go. And it's very, very different across the world. And certainly at the Royal Ballet, we're working really hard on it. But I, I think the um, the aspiration, the willingness, the self-reflection and the honesty that's required to make effective change is happening. We just need to keep on it. Absolutely. The the other dominating feature of ballet um, traditionally is age. You know, this somehow just as dancers are reaching the absolute peak of their expressivity, it's time for them to retire. I mean, I find that personally very heartbreaking. You have worked with the great Alessandra Ferry, who is still young, but of course, in ballet terms is quote unquote retired, if I, if I believe she is, on more than one occasion you've worked with her. And then when you look at the dancers in Pina Bausch's company, many of whom are in their 50s, 60s, sometimes even 70s, they have been stunning audiences for, for decades. You know, how can ballet dancers' careers be lengthened? I mean, if Pina could do it, why can't you, Wayne? It is. It's happening, isn't it? I mean, obviously, Al- Alessandra Ferry's in her 50s. She's been in Wolfworth. She's coming with me now to La Scala to do my Rite of Spring, which is happening in the summer. Um, I work with Ed, you know, just at the moment he's retiring, but continue to work with Ed. I think lots of people are very interested in working with older dancers, but it's important, isn't it? It's important for also audiences to have the opportunity to see older dancers, to reflect also part of themselves back into that reciprocal loop when you watch stuff. You know, m- many of the ballet audiences are much older than 30. So I think it's really, really important to that. We need to find really fantastic, expressive and physical roles for these dancers. We need to re-educate our audiences so that they understand that actually um, the career of or the expectation that a career of a, a ballet dancer stops in their 30s is not actually what's happening. And we can only do that by encouraging more and more older dancers to remain on our large lyric stages and to perhaps 
decide on projects that they want to do. So to bring projects themselves to major companies to say, look, this is a really interesting project that I would like to um, work on and, and, and produce. And perhaps that kind of dialogue would be a really exciting way to make sure that our um, dance vocabulary is extended. I, you know, I'm in my 50s now. Um, I feel my body has changed, but I, ha- I also feel that my expressive range has changed and I feel I've still a lot to give. I feel I've got a lot to say. Um, and I think once you're a dancer, you're always a dancer. And I think I want to see more and more older um, dancers on stages and much older dancers. You know, I would love to see the 70s and the 80-year-old dancers on some of our stages. Fantastic. Uh, in 2010, the author Jennifer Homans wrote a very thorough history of ballet called Apollo's Angels. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but the conclusion was pretty bleak. In it, she wrote, after years of trying to convince myself otherwise, I now feel sure that ballet is dying. The occasional glimmer of a good performance or a fine dancer is not a ray of future hope, but the last glow of a dying ember. And her conclusion was, we are watching ballet go, documenting its past and its passing before it fades altogether. I mean, how do you feel about this particular issue 12 years after this book was published? Well, she's been proven wrong, hasn't she? Because mm-hmm. ballet is not dying. There's no way that it's a, you know, an ember in the fire. It's quite the opposite. You know, if we just again think about Covent Garden, our ballet audiences are phenomenal. We're extending the amount of performances that we're doing. We're having a much um, wider group of um, younger people coming into the theatre. There's a real energy and buzz about dance in general, actually. But I, 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 th- I think that's just not true. I think, I, I think what's really important is that we evolve ballet. You know, ballet is a contemporary language. It's not just a repertory language. And we have to encourage risk taking from the major institutions to keep that really, really alive. But it's not dying. There's too much passion. There's too much excellence. There's too much creativity and improvisation. And, you know, there's been a whole range of new ballet directors taking over some of the major companies, whether that be New York City Ballet, you know, whether that be Kevin at at the Royal, you know, tomorrow going to San Francisco. You know, there's a whole wealth of new talent directing companies and want companies to look different in the next decade. So I think it's going to be quite the opposite. I think you're going to see a burgeoning of um, ballet vocabulary, a burgeoning and evolution of work and a range of voices on our stages that are really going to inspire people. It's always difficult, though, to come up with another Swan Lake. Do you know what I mean? I mean, when one thinks back to those petit pas ballets, it's, um, one thinks, how can one surpass this? Well, I think it's about making new work. I think it's about telling new stories. So, you know, that one of the reasons I wanted to make the wolf pieces is because it's not been done before. The reason I wanted to do Dante was because it's not been done before. The reason I'm working with Margaret Atwood on Mad Adam is because it's not been done before. New stories sitting alongside the Swan Lakes are really, really exciting. This is a personal point of view. I think the reversioning of classical work um, is not so interesting. It's certainly not so interesting to me. I think those amazing original pieces should stay in their original form and be performed at the highest um, quality. I think that's really, really extraordinary. But I think the new stories, the new, um, the new relevant contemporary Um, themes that can connect with audiences of today are the way in which we balance the repertory to engage people of the future. Hmm. Let's pull away from the subject of ballet for a moment and dance and uh, sort of ask you, Wayne McGregor, as someone who reads a lot as an intellectual, as a thinker, how you feel living in the world of today. We're coming out of 
you know, five or six really, really tough years. We had the year 2016 with, with, you know, waves of populism sort of sweeping across the Western world. And then after that, we kind of, a couple of years after that, we went into this terrible pandemic, which has claimed so many millions of lives and done so much harm to your profession. I was just wondering how you felt, Wayne, as um, as an artist and a creator living in this very, very difficult world, difficult way beyond the previous generation had experienced. It's true. And we're in a very difficult place in relationship to the arts. I think, you know, it, certainly in the UK, the combination of COVID and Brexit has been devastating on companies' ability to be able to do the things that they do really well. And I think that's something that's really going to be very impactful over the next five years or so. We know that, you know, the government isn't necessarily that interested in supporting the arts the way in which, you know, we would like it to be. And, you know, we are worried about whether or not there will be massive cuts coming up um, to arts budgets. And also theatres are just just slightly recovering and coming back on, on stream. So for, for touring, for example, international touring or national touring, it's really, really difficult how that impacts us, it impacts us obviously in terms of the individual. Think about all of those young dancers who are in training, who've had basically two and a half years at home on Zoom, trying to come into a profession which is really unstable. Think about the professional dancers who aren't in the big companies. Um, all of them freelance portfolio artists not having had any work. There's been a massive um, exodus of creative talent from the industry. And that's really, really impactful. And then finally, if you think about all of the um, very, very brilliant administrative uh, directors and finance directors that are working in companies, they've all moved to other jobs, to more secure jobs, to more secure positions. We are at a very, very difficult time and we have to rebuild. And we've been talking about rebuilding and there was a lot of energy about um, the conversation around rebuilding and rebuilding better but in arts organisations, we need to do that. We need to look at different ways in which we can actually rebuild a system that supports the work that we want to make. And for me personally, that's also looking at the metaverse and looking at virtual reality and looking at some of the balance, some of the technological approaches to the dissemination of content and an interaction with content, which is different from live stage events. If we value culture, we have to find a way of advocating for culture right now. We have to be supporting theatres and we have to be encouraging our, um, you know, our politicians and, and the people who are funding um, culture and realising the importance of culture, that it's central to our experience of being human. And it cannot be replaced by anything else. There's something so particular and unique about culture that if it's missing we will never be able to claw back the brilliance of our cultural investment of the past. So that, that really does keep me up at night. It worries me. Um, and all we can do is keep finding new ways to move forward. Yeah, and I mean, I think that um, you're someone who obviously spends time in your mind outside the world of dance. Uh, and that's why you're a compelling choreographer. I think you like to read a lot. And I also think that you're drawn to the visual arts. The visual arts inspire you. I was just wondered, wondering which books you'd read recently or not recently that, that you really admire and which artists, whether living or dead, you um, have a fondness for. 
Well, I have, you know, a fondness of so many artists. I mean, straight off the top of my head, it would be the, the artist um, Agnes Martin and the rigour of those paintings. You know, one of the most extraordinary um, experiences I've ever had, cultural experiences I've ever had, was at Dear Beacon in the Agnes Martin room um, quite a few years ago and just being soaked into that environment. Um, you know, it's really, really incredible work. Yeah, I do like to read. I mean, I've been working on a book myself at the moment around the ideas of physical intelligence um, and that draws on a whole range of science from cognitive neuroscience to interoception. So one of the the, the expanded bits of research that I have to do is is reading around um, um, obviously that area. And I'm lucky at the moment I'm working on a project with Margaret Atwood. So I've been reading a lot of Atwood to kind of like delve into, um, in, into that world. I think it's really important that we look outside of dance to find knowledge sets that inspire dance. I think when we're just too self-referential, I think it's really problematic. And I think one of the great things often the visual arts the visual art world does is look outside and it communicates well what some of the ideas and intentions of work are to a broader public and um i think one of the things that i have always wanted to try and do in dance is to try and do that to try and have collaborators that help us extend the real world application of dance in lots of different contexts so we might be working with um, a neuroscientist on a particular project but that research might impact people who have alzheimer's um in a particular community so there's a sense in which some of the physical knowledge that we have or perhaps experts at can be translated into a wider application. And that's really exciting where actually you feel that you're not just, it's not just about culture, but culture is relevant and impactful in other domains. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you're the artistic director of the Venice uh, Dance Biennale this year, uh, and you recently had the absolutely brilliant idea of giving a top award to the Spanish uh, dancer Rocio Molina, who is one of the most prodigious dancers in the world today. Um, personally, as a student of flamenco, I've had the honor of workshopping with Rocio more than once, and uh, as well as with her former teacher, Maestro Javier Latorre, who is one of the greatest choreographers in the flamenco world. But I just wanted to know, um, I know why I love flamenco. <laughs> I just wanted to know what you like about it. I, I, well, I, well, first of all, I really love Rocio's work. I like the, the intelligence and the fierceness by which she is evolving the flamenco language um, and for me that kind of fearlessness is what I respond to also when choreographers are doing that with a classical vocabulary whatever it is um, I, I think one of the fantastic things about Rossia is that she's also connecting um, outside of her language set so she's working in a way that's really fresh that's powerful that's unusual that can be quite brutal and violent but I think one of the things I love most about flamenco is the adrenaline rush I get from watching <laughs> a flamenco artist perform. I've always loved it. It's I, I, I find it so unlike any other dance form. And I find the passion and the rawness that feels to, feels to me to emanate right the way through the earth and channel right the way up through the body into this electricity is something which is absolutely extraordinary. And Rossia has this incredible ability to do that. Um, and she's inspiring people to think about flamenco in a different way. You know, we're expanding our view of what the potential of flamenco is. And I think that Silver Lion in Venice is, is an ideal award to um, profile her more in regard to that, that she is literally changing the nature of the future of flamenco. Mm, absolutely. So let's um, wrap up the show with some kind of 
sort of big questions, sort of big look back and look forward questions. And the first question I wanted to ask you, artists are absolutely known for being very, very self-critical and for constantly beating themselves up and sticking pins in their bottoms and saying, you're not going far enough, you need to go farther, etc., etc. And I wondered, how does Wayne McGregor in his quiet moments when there's no one watching and no one listening judge the career that he's had? I think partly by not looking backwards. So I think partly I don't like to look backwards. I am very self-reflective about the work itself and very critical about it. But I know it while I'm making it, almost. I don't need to look back. Almost the moment I've made the decisions, the moment that hits the stage, I already know what's wrong with it. Um, And I think one of the things that I do when I, you know, I I watch my pieces at Covent Garden from the wings um, because I want to be close enough to the dancers to feel what they're experiencing but also I feel I give better notes because I'm closer to the object of the dance rather than sitting out front and feeling I'm responding through the audience's eyes. So I I think that immediate moment, I already know what's wrong with it. It drives me, the problems in the work. It drives me the, uh, I think the reason I make is because I know I've not been able to capture the thing that I really wanted to do. And that leads to a very, in some ways, dissatisfied sense of yourself as an artist. There's an irritant inside of me that makes me want to go into the studio again and I don't like my past work um wow you, you sorry you don't like your past work? I don't like I don't I, I don't sit there thinking oh, I love all of these pieces I I look at when I'm watching the past work I see all of the problems I understand that they're a particular decision at a particular moment in time but I can't help but go I would not make that decision now that's why I make a new piece because that's a collection of decisions made at that time and I don't want to start to like undo those I want to start to make new decisions but informed by I understand but what about in life I mean every time I ask you a question about life you connect it to dance which of course is normal dance is my life (laughs) I mean dance how are they separate yeah okay they're not separate but there is a thing called life you know your childhood your adolescence your your parents your all of that all of that life life the whole package are you happy when you or satisfied you know more or less when you look back on your life as a whole oh in life i'm very happy i mean i think in life i'm much less self critical i'm kind of much more easygoing I find joy in my life um, and I find that really easy to do. I feel extraordinarily fortunate um, and I'm really excited by the opportunities that I, that I have in life. But yeah, I'm, I, I, from that point of view, I'm not at all self-critical or, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not in a, in a dark room with my head in my hands going, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? Yeah. And you also have a house in Kenya. I, mean, I do. That adds to the joy, I guess. Well, it, it adds to this, this amazing... Um, sense of openness and freedom and huge skies, massive expanse, um, warm body, dogs swimming, reading, you know, and just a different relationship that, you know, my house is in a place called Lamu, there are no roads and no cars and everybody's walking, everybody's on donkeys. There's a physicalized, energized sense of living and that really fuels me up. And um, I mean, again, another big question. I wondered how you would like to be remembered, let's say, 100 years from now or 50 years from now, when we're both going to be gone, I guess. 
I think I don't worry so much about how I'd be remembered, but I just hope that my time here has been impactful. I would love to have made change to, you know, some of the biggest structures through my work or through my thinking about how organizations work. Um, I, w- I want to have made a contribution to change. You know, one of the things we've been working on quite recently is uh, some legacy projects which are around archive. And one of the things we're building at the moment is an autonomous choreographic um, language agent, a kind of a, a, a system, a machine learning system that's able to create dancers when I'm no longer here, but perhaps in the style of or some of the kind of the propensities of that. We don't know if that's going to be wor- working, but it's a, it's all, it's just a very interesting question for me. How is it that you might be able to inspire future generations of dance makers and dancers and audiences um, to interact with your archive in a much more active way? where your physical signature might still live or the phys- physical signatures of the other dancers that you've worked with might still live, but find a new form when those forms have been invented. And that really, exci- it really excites me. So hopefully it's a, it's a gift for the future rather than a, 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 a heavy load that has to, there's a burden that has to be carried forward. So we could be looking at an AI Wayne McGregor. I think you could be looking at your version of a dance, which is inspired by some of the physical signature of Wayne McGregor. My last question, um, Wayne, do you have a, um, an unrealized project, something that you've always wanted to do in your life that you haven't been able to yet? I always have unrealized projects. That's something, you know, you know, my pieces are all unrealized projects that I'm then doing. But I think my big one is to build a house. I would love to build my own house in the UK. You know, I'm a big fan of architecture. I've learned a lot about architecture over the years. And I would love to create a space which in some way embodies some of the physical ideas that I've had in dance making in a material form that I can live in. So what does that mean? Like, what kind of form would that house take? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's the that, that's the, that's the endeavor, isn't it? To find what would that be? What what are those spaces that charge you and electrify you? And how do you build a house that is shape shifting? Seems to me to be a really interesting um, kind of conceptual question that I hope one day to be able to actively realize. Thank you so much, Wayne. It, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this show. Thank you. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thanks so much. Thank you to Wayne McGregor for being the very first choreographer on Culture Blast. And what a choreographer. If you like this episode and the ones that came before, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the ones that come after. And do share the link as widely as you can with your network. My special thanks go to the two people who make this podcast possible. The great Karina Pierre Rochard, executive producer of Culture Blast, and the very talented Ben Eshmaid, the producer of the podcast. Stay tuned and make sure you join me for my next conversation. <laughs>